This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? We care about your world. My guest is Daniel Drayson. He's an award-winning documentary filmmaker, photographer, and media producer. Since the early 1990s, he's been actively investigating the field of afterlife communication through traditional mental and physical mediumship, as well as modern electronics. His new book that we're going to be talking about is A New Science of the Afterlife, Space, Time, and the Consciousness Code. So Dan, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you very much, Tonio. It's good to be with you. So one thing that really struck me about this book was the playful way that you write and the way you play with metaphors, which I really, really enjoyed. Well, thank you. Um, my my whole approach to the subject um, has been as much as possible to kind of normalize and humanize it. Uh, I think we need to take these questions out of the realm of sensationalist language, spookiness, that sort of thing. I mean, let's face it, we're all going to die. Death is part of life in, in, in so many ways. And I think that a part of demystifying and de-spookifying death is to kind of step back and just take a deep breath and see if we can shift our whole relationship to it in what I would hope would be a healthy way. And I've tried to do that as much as possible in my book. And I hope I've succeeded at least to some extent. I think you you succeeded to an amazing extent. And over the last few days, I watched the two main documentary films that you created, The Skull Experiment and Calling Earth. And I was really amazed at how much solid, well, solid's probably not the right word, but the very strong evidence, what I would consider irrefutable evidence of the afterlife and consciousness beyond death. Well, thank you. Um, th- this was when, when Tim Coleman and I set out to produce these documentaries, we sort of cast a wide net. And these two areas of focus seem to us to be the most, and I'll use the word solid, um, 
types of evidence for uh, consciousness beyond the physical. I, I actually don't like the term afterlife because I think it's too limiting. And as I say in my book, I accept the term sort of grudgingly because I understand that, you know, most of, most of what we've learned about the afterlife has been from those who've recently passed. But I think the word also discourages us from, from getting a, a broader feeling of, of the nature of what I call and other people call the greater reality. To me, the greater reality is a, the larger context within which our physical life and our physical world and physical universe are embedded. So I see the so-called afterlife as also a before life and a during life and a beyond life. And this concern about language is one of the reasons why the longest chapter in my book is about language. It's about the semantics of you know how language influences how we construct our own reality. And it's interesting when you overhear say, bilingual or multilingual people in conversation, they'll very often switch languages because one language will express a particular subject or reality or attitude or feeling much more than another will. When we're confined to, say, modern English, which most of us are, at least as our primary language, you know, we're, we're slotted into a certain perspective on reality. And I, I think it's fair to say that most, if not all, Western languages are based on the notion that the physical reality is the only one. Our language is very, very strongly oriented towards reality equals physical. So I try to have some fun with this issue in my book, and uh, I actually enjoyed writing that chapter quite a lot. I like to cite uh, one of the items in, in that chapter is the header for it is, where are the bodies buried? And the answer to that is that some of the bodies are buried right in our English language. When we say somebody, nobody, everybody, anybody, we're reinforcing the notion that we're nothing but our bodies. So in conversation, personally, I like to rather say someone, anyone, no one, and so forth, because I think that kind of softens the term, and it also focuses on the one who's inhabiting the body rather than the body itself. So does that does that make sense to you? Oh yeah. And that was that was a big part of why I enjoyed the book so much. And you also talked about words that we use in our culture like normal, paranormal, supernatural and things like that. Right. And I'm fascinated with those as well because for example, in regard to supernatural, who's to say what the limits of nature are? You know, we do. We we project our own sense of the limits of nature onto our language, and we say such and such is natural and such and such is supernatural. But, you know, who gets to draw the boundary on that? Who's to say where we go beyond the bounds of nature? To me, nature is the whole thing, you know, the whole, the whole context of, of any reality you can conceive. So in terms of that perspective, nothing is supernatural. It's all natural. There may be aspects of it that our culture discourages us from examining or involving ourselves with, but that's our culture. That's not reality. And as far as normal and paranormal, we don't know what's paranormal either because we can't talk about most of it. In the book, I say, how, how do we know our next door neighbors don't have rollicking conversations with their dead uncles every Wednesday at 9 p.m.? We don't. You know, if they did, would they admit it? Would they talk about it? Of course not. And certainly if they're members of any profession, particularly in the scientific or academic sphere, that's the last thing in the world they would let on about. So one wonders, you know, what 
kinds of experiences people have all the time that they just don't share. So we call them paranormal, but for all we know, they're perfectly normal. Yeah. And you talk about how the physical brain is a kind of reducing valve or filter. And then we use our language and the words that we've become conditioned to use by our culture to lock in that reduced or filtered sense of reality. Right. We equate consciousness with some activity of the brain. Now, obviously, the, the brain affects our consciousness. There's no argument about that. When we're aware of our surroundings, our physical surroundings, our consciousness is looking through our brain and our physical senses, our eyes in this case. But the consciousness itself is no more equatable to the brain than sunlight is equatable to stained glass. I mean, obviously, stained glass affects sunlight that passes through it, but the glass is one thing and the light is another. And I think that's a, a valid model for looking at the distinction between our consciousness and what reduces it or filters it or specializes it to working with our physical plane. Yeah, and one of the things that you say about that and, and the way we use words is that it reduces reality to these simplistic notions that our mind can grasp, which you then say is not very much. <laughs> right, that's a quote from Eckhart Tolle. Um, yeah, our, our minds, as we experience them while we are incarnated, are, are very specialized. They're focused on, on the, um, the activities and concerns and obligations, let's say, of the physical plane. I mean, we how much of our daily lives are concerned with just the maintenance of our physical bodies and our finances and you know our our homes and so on and our brains and our senses are very much um adapted to all this maintenance as it were although we do have time for fun and creativity and other things for which our minds are are specialized as well beyond the physical plane uh to the best of our knowledge we we have a different uh, let's say different ratio of maintenance to um, creativity enjoyment exploration so on the field out there is a lot wider than it is here in our physical world but yes our our brains are these focusing devices that help us operate within the the physical sphere and I think in in, in terms of our everyday experiences and activities it does a pretty good job of it as long as it's in good shape and healthy and so forth. Yeah, and that works well if we're satisfied with the material reality of existence. But if we're interested in anything beyond that, it's not very helpful. Uh, I think it's generally true, that, though there is a middle ground, and that would be in the sphere of creativity and the arts and so forth, where we're bringing through or channeling, as it were, a level of inspiration that the physical plane per se is not equipped to provide. So anytime we bring something new or novel, solve a problem, uh, write a piece of music, uh, whatever it is, create an object that never existed before, we're actually going a bit beyond you know, the purely physical. We may manifest the result physically, but the process does involve bringing through that filter um, something more, something extra, and very often something beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Poetic license, you could call it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 
So how did you become interested in all of this? Well, it's hard to say. I, I, some of it goes back to my childhood when I experienced a number of precognitive dreams. And um, I, couldn't, I couldn't understand how that happened at the time, but it was enough to illustrate to me the fact that, as I put it, in the theater of life, stuff goes on backstage. That there are aspects of reality that we're not normally aware of or privy to. But it was enough for me to understand that at that time. I then became, even when I was quite young, quite fascinated with the whole UFO question. And it was partly because it was ridiculed and rejected by our culture. And that got my attention. And because the manner in which these things were ridiculed and rejected seemed to me quite irrational, sort of a, a knee-jerk response. So it, it piqued my curiosity, and I became quite a, a researcher in that field for some time. And I've sort of lived a double life in a sense. I mean, there was my has been my professional life as a cinematographer and media producer and audio guy. But behind the scenes, I've had this, this perpetual fascination with the, with the greater reality. Now, as far as my interest in the afterlife is concerned, that developed around about the 1990s when I met Mark Macy, who was an experimenter in the field of instrumental transcommunication, which is communication from the other side through modern electronics. Uh, he had written a book at the time, which I read. I was kind of skeptical of the whole thing. But the more I got to know the people involved and the work they were doing, the more impressed I was. And that eventually led to uh, the documentary, which took over a decade to make, actually. We started out uh, in the early 2000s and ended up around 2010, 2015, with various versions of these two documentaries. Um, and in the course of doing the documentaries, we visited um, Skoll, the small town in England, where this experiment had taken place over a five-year period in the late 1990s in physical mediumship, which, as some of your listeners may know, is a, a practice of creating a, an atmosphere, a space in which those on the other side can actually manifest physical evidence on our side, which can be preserved and studied or, or recorded. And I think the Skoll experiment was probably the most uh, impressive and the most watertight case for afterlife communication and and physical mediumship ever attempted. It resulted in several books, our documentary, a scientific report by the British Society for Psychical Research, and I think our documentary is probably, as far as I know, it's the only documentary that's ever been done about Skoll. And uh, people seem to enjoy it and find it quite fascinating and intriguing and sometimes a bit mind-bending. So I would say that those two, those two areas, the physical mediumship and, and the instrumental transcommunication, were my initial windows into the field of afterlife research. Um, I've also been working with a team of mediums for about five years, and we've created a website called cosmicvoices.network, where our mediums have posted a number of channel messages from, from folks on the other side who have decided to stay close enough to the physical plane to be able to channel easily, to be able to uh, engage in com actually two-way conversation with us. So that's another aspect of it, just mental mediumship, communication through mediums, through talented mediums between us and the other side. And that's been endlessly fascinating to me. Yeah, the Skoll Experiment documentary was absolutely and utterly fascinating. 
And one of the things that really struck me about it was how it seemed that it, it took quite a while for the team on the other side to learn how to communicate and manifest into our realm on this side. Yes. My impression is that it was something that developed on both sides over a period of time. Um, the veil, as it were, is rather thick. <laughs> and how consciousness and its manifestations manage to get through that veil is, is it's quite an obscure process. Basically, to the best of my understanding, it depends on consistent movements of mind, intention on both sides of the veil. And that is what, what ultimately punches through the, I would say, the discrepancy in frequency between this side and the other side. It's as if uh, our physical world vibrates at the acoustic rate and the other side vibrates at uh, the rate of light. That's quite a difference. And translating between realms of different frequency involves a process that we can't, we can't even imagine. We are told that some of these communications take place thanks to particular entities who have learned how to transmit the energy between the two realms. That the, the folks that we're speaking with on the other side, they may not themselves have the skill to do that, but there are other entities who act as intermediaries who do have those skills. You know, whether that's how it's always done, I have no idea. There's a great deal we don't know about how, the, how all this works. But the fact that it does work is I think the major lesson. You know, we're we're not going to uh, figure out the, the the mechanisms of action anytime in the near future. I don't think. Meanwhile, we don't need to understand the mechanisms of action, actually, of anything, in order to acknowledge that it exists. And um, I think that's actually one of the problems we've had with so-called skepticism. That skept many skeptics will say, "Well, if we don't know how this works, then it can't possibly happen." And of course, that violates one of the major tenets of science, which is the whole point of science is to inquire into how and why things happen. And uh, without that curiosity, there would be no science. I mean, science is basically organized curiosity. You know, in whatever uh, field of specialization it happens to work, that's the common denominator. And so there's no reason why scientific curiosity can't apply itself to these questions of the afterlife and the greater reality. And interdimensional communication. To me, it's just common sense that we should be inquiring into these things. So I feel like I've gone pretty far afield of your question. Not at all. I welcome any deviations. So <laughs> what, let, let me, let me uh, hold up the, the mirror here for a moment and ask you, how did you become involved in all of this? Well, when I was a child, I had some very strange experiences and no context within which to understand them or to even think about them. And I didn't talk to anybody about them. Although at one point, even before that, I did have an, ex I had a couple of neighbors, a pair of twins. I grew up in New York City and around the corner, there were, I was about six or seven and there were twins who I would play with on occasion. I never went up to their apartment. They would tell me about how their parents would have their uncles and aunts come over and they would sit around the table and they would do what they described as telekinesis. They would play these games of telekinesis. And when they did that, when they all gathered, they would send the kids out. Uh-huh. 
So I was I was exposed to things outside of our normal realm from an early age. Plus, I also lived in southern Spain for a year when I was a child, which completely uh -huh. gave me a very radically different perspective from our American cultural view. And I had an out-of-body experience when I was a child as I was about to get into a bicycle accident. And then mm. at the age of 18, on an LSD trip with my girlfriend, whose father had died when she was 12 and he was her best friend, uh. um, I was actually shunted. I was kind of shunted out of the way. And he came through me to talk to her. And I had no real awareness of what was happening, although I could see myself from behind. Hmm. But I didn't hear any of the conversation, but she told me about it right afterwards. And she was profoundly moved by it. And it changed her life because she was coming out of a very difficult situation. And apparently she really needed that guidance from him. Wow. Well, th I, this is the first time I've ever heard of psychedelics uh, performing that particular function of getting someone out of the way so someone could speak from the other side. Have you written about that? Um, I haven't, but I think that because of the situation that she was just emerging out of, she needed a lot of help. And mm -hmm. that was an extremely unusual LSD experience for me. I mean, it was way beyond the bounds of any other experience I've ever had. And, wow. and we were high for at least a week or two afterwards. And we were being followed by spirits. Because we would go into a restaurant or a store or a place and we would close the door behind us. And, and we got into the habit of making sure the door was completely latched shut. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then a few steps in, the door would open swing open and then <laughs> shut and this happened repeatedly <laughs> during those couple of weeks wow wow and my, and my sense of that was this was to let us know that we were being protected because she was coming out of a, a really dangerous situation or she was really afraid that uh these people were going to come after her and my sense was that they were looking after us and reaffirming that she was being protected. Hmm. Do you so get that, a sense of the identity of the spirits? No sense. Although at one point during the trip, I was looking into her eyes and I had just returned from my first semester in college and I had just gotten profoundly turned on to Taoism. And I was looking into mm -hmm. her eyes and through her eyes, I saw a group of ancient Chinese elders dressed in these ornate brocade robes with wow. long, long white beards and, and all of that. Wow. That's an amazing story. Thank you. So I've always been utterly fascinated by all of this. And even as a child, I had this, this deep intuitive sense that everything that our modern adult world believed in was completely wrong. I mean, like, <laughs> like, a, like 180 degrees wrong. <laughs> well, how did, how did that manifest in your life, say, between your childhood years and now? 
Well, I would say that I've been guided and and very blessed to to have been guided into some wonderful life circumstances in which I was able to learn a lot because I had a very traumatic early life and I needed a lot of help and guidance. And I just feel like I was guided into the kind of work and study and meditation and all of that that I desperately needed, but Mm. didn't really know, couldn't even imagine how to approach it. Wow. So I've well, been I've been working in this realm in all sorts of ways for decades. And getting to talk to people like you, you know, read books and and talk to people like you just keeps that flowing into my life on a continual basis. What what are some of the books you recommend to people? And I ask that because in my book, I recommend that people read should read widely. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm not I'm not pretending to have the last word. Yeah. I would say the book that well, there were many books that completely opened my eyes, but beyond the spiritual books that that I found profoundly moving was in nineteen ninety-two, Michael Talbot wrote The Holographic Universe. Uh-huh. And that blew the doors off of my worldly perspective of the world, even though it was the quantum and holographic perspective of the universe. It was grounded in modern science. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that book? I haven't read it, but I know of it for sure. Um, there's a lot of books I haven't read. <laughs> uh-huh. But I, I seem to uh, recently learned that I seem to have independently tuned in to what other people have intuited and come up with over the years. Um, the holographic perspective, I think, is very important because when we get beyond the physical, um, I think we have to abandon or at least soften our ideas about space and time as being sort of fixed or, or rigid standards of reality. For example, when people have you know, reported forever passing over and being greeted by relatives, and these relatives appeared to them either as they remembered them or they appeared to them as if they had been in the prime of life. So the way it seems to me at this point in my understanding is that the so-called other side is a sort of a, a holographic matrix in which space doesn't exist in, a, in the sense that we think of it. It is one thing. In holography, even as we practice it in our own simplistic way, photographically, every part of the image is present, or every detail of the image is present throughout the whole photographic plate. And similarly, it seems to me that the greater reality is constructed that way, that there is no, there are no spatial limits as such. There are no spatial boundaries, but that consciousness can localize itself as a particular being, as it were, say, say, I'm going to pass over, I'm going to retain a sense of identity, a sense of distinct identity, but I don't have boundaries in the sense that my physical boundaries exist now. So when I pass over and a relative comes to me and welcomes me into that realm, uh, I don't expect that they exist in some three-dimensional space, but that they are projecting an image into my consciousness. So what I'm seeing is their desired projection of however they wish to appear to me, 
Uh, but it's not as if that's how they appear to everyone else. If other observers were observing this scene, they might see something completely different. They may see something that reflects an image or an identity that's more familiar to them. So, and I think that understanding that perception is relative to the perceiver uh, is important even in our physical world. Because I think that the more we understand that each of us creates our own experience of reality, the more tolerance I think we have for other people's points of view. They're going with reality as it is to them. And so I think especially in, in, in familial relationships and intimate relationships, to realize that the other person, no matter how close we may feel to them, the other person lives in a very different reality than oneself. And I think that that helps us maintain a, a sense of respect, if not a sense of awe, actually, that, um, you know, we, and a sense of humility about our own perspective as well, which I think can make for um, much healthier, respectful and creative and fulfilling relationships. Does that make sense to you? Oh, absolutely. And I, I so totally agree. And it's interesting how our perceived reality is all we know. And so it's so easy to mistake it for all there is to know. Right. And that's such a trap that it's, in a way, it's almost impossible not to fall into. The only difference is that we can learn to recognize the trap and know that even though we're in it, that isn't necessarily the limits of reality. Exactly. I think it's important to bring in science here. I think this is where science comes in and can really shine because, you know, science as you know, I like to use the phrase organized curiosity properly applied takes nothing for granted. I mean, inquiry is inquiry. When we come to any subject with an open mind and, you know, perhaps some sense of familiarity or knowledge about it, but basically an open mind, that's when the reality itself can reveal itself to us. The more open our minds, obviously, the more open we are to communication, to demonstration, even to things that for which we have no language or experience. I mean, in the Skoll experiment, for example, you had conventional mental mediumship where the mediums were were bringing in folks from the other side and and speaking on their behalf. But then you also had voices that just came right out of thin air where the mediums were not involved. Now, how does that work? <laughs> and, you know, the fact that, that the Skoll experiment was an experiment, it was an exercise in open-mindedness and seeing what people could do and how they could produce unprecedented phenomena and have fun doing the whole thing, because the whole thing was quite a lot of fun. And there was a great deal of humor involved in it, as, as I think uh, part of my documentary illustrates. And I think that that's a very important ingredient because humor and lightness are qualities that I think can help soften or dissolve some of our self-importance. And um, that self-importance, I think, has been a huge obstacle to our greater awareness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I actually love science, but I have a difficult time with much of the kind of mainstream approach that many, quote unquote, scientists or people who claim to believe in science, you know, how they tend to get trapped in a kind of very narrow-minded, religious-like dogmatism. Right. This is, um, this is what some people have called scientism. Yeah. 
it's equating science with uh, you know the particular theories and and frameworks of reality that have been you know developed in the West you know since since the 1600s. I mean, science for the most part for the last several centuries has focused on the material plane. And that's perfectly understandable since science, as we know it, developed partly in, in reaction to the church. And so the, the materialistic phase of science, I think, has been a, a very important step. But I think at this point, and even for the past hundred years, things like our discoveries in the quantum realm have begun to, uh, to soften things a bit and to make us question some of our dogmatic ideas about how even physical reality is constructed. with Dan Drayson. He's an award-winning documentary filmmaker and researcher into, for want of a better term, afterlife phenomena and consciousness after death. And he's the author of this book that we've been talking about, A New Science of the Afterlife, Time, Space, and the Consciousness Code. So this desperate holding on to materialistic interpretation of, of scientific understanding, it's a phase I think that we're going through. Um, we sometimes call it skepticism, but that's not skepticism at all, really. Uh, where proper skepticism comes into the scientific method is simply in, in questioning. Evidence for such and such shows up. And you say, okay, well, is this is this real or is this an illusion or are we fooling ourselves? So we ask questions, we test the situation as best we can. And that's that's the sense in which healthy skepticism is an important component of science. Unfortunately, the word has been distorted to mean a sort of a priori dismissal of novel ideas and ideas that go beyond, not necessarily actually go beyond science, they go beyond um, you know, what's permissible in, in the realm of academia, or what seems to be. I mean, if you get academics uh, after hours uh, at the local bar, <laughs> you may find out that even uh, even uh, some nominally hard-headed uh, skeptics uh, have had some very interesting experiences themselves that they can really only speak about privately. Yeah. I hope this changes. But this this is something that that uh, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake has been on to for many years, having uh, spoken with many of his uh, academic colleagues behind the scenes, and realizing that these people, you know, they they can't come out and confess to their own experiences. It would be very disruptive to their lives. So, and it, it takes a great deal of courage to to cross that boundary. But more and more people are doing it now, and uh, hopefully, this will will result in a a rising tide of of awareness in in these areas. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that 
it seemed like most of the people involved in these experiments and research began as skeptics. They they found it impossible to believe that it was real, but they did have an open enough mind to pursue it. And when the evidence was there, they changed their mind. Right. And I suspect that in many cases, the reason they, they bothered to look farther than their own dogma, shall we say, uh, is probably because of personal experiences that they've had that caused them to to be curious and to be willing to cross those lines. Again, we, we have no idea what's what's paranormal and how often people have these experiences. My guess is that almost everyone has had, shall we say, unauthorized experiences at one point or another. But our culture just simply puts up these barriers to uh, communicating this. Right. And if we, we don't hear anybody else talking about any of this, we may not even remember that we've had those experiences or have the kind of language to, to even put them into a context of language to even think about it. That's a very good point. A very, very good point, Tonio. Um, I myself have had the experience of forgetting or erasing some things from memory until they were re-stimulated sometime later by someone's question or some parallel event. It's it's easy for us to tuck these things away and um, not not even pretend that they don't exist. Uh, you know, when something is is buried, you know, white from our memory or buried in our memory, it's as if it never happened. Yeah, I've definitely experienced that many times in my life. Mm. At one point in the book, you you offer the analogy of incarnation through the analogy of getting into a car and driving. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, basically, you know, when you, when you get into a car, it's like you become a car among other cars. You know, your body's physical movements are constrained. I mean, you can't walk or run or dance or or jump or do cartwheels or anything like that you're you're just confined to that driver's seat but the trade-off is that you have abilities and powers that you your body alone doesn't have but i think the amusing part of it is that we then tend to identify as the car i mean how often have we thought oh the guy almost hit me or he hit me in the right rear fender you know um, or I'm parked over there, you know, I'm over there pointing to the car. So, yes, there there is a merging of identities with the body, in this case, the car. And that, I think, is a, a perfect analogy for our actual incarnation, in which we trade off a certain inner freedom against um, a particular framework in which we have a certain focus and certain abilities and certain constraints that provide an arena in which we can develop in certain ways that we can't when we're on the other side. You know, our, our physical environment, our physiology, our health, our relationships, our work compel us to develop certain qualities that we would not otherwise have. And so I, it's not as if I'm rejecting physical life or making value judgments about it. I think every context, every domain has its own gifts, as long as we understand them, take them to heart, and apply ourselves in the present. I think that's another very important thing, to simply be in the present and, and be honest with ourselves about the challenges of, of our life, 
Um, nothing lasts forever, no matter how good or how horrible it may be. And uh, just to meet life face-to-face, as it were. And sometimes that's difficult or challenging, but you know that's what time is for. Time, um, whatever situation we're in now, will eventually lapse into something else. And how we meet these situations in life, I think, is what, um, I'm trying to think of the, a good word here, it, it, it conditions our soul, it conditions our being, and allows it to grow. I mean, we, we use the term growth fairly loosely. You know, obviously, physical growth is one thing. Emotional growth is something else. Spiritual growth, to me, is, a you might say, an incomprehensibly multidimensional process. We only have a sense of little bits and pieces of it while we're while we're incarnate, but it appears to me that our souls are, I think, multidimensional would be a sort of a minimal way of putting it. That there are aspects to our greater reality that we we have no labels for, we have no experience of until we get there. And so I think that you know we need to maintain some some humility about. Even the most sophisticated of our afterlife studies can really only end up in in physical terms, you might say, or in terms of our common language. You were mentioning your experience of you know following your LSD trip, of being accompanied by spirits and so on for some period of time. I mean, how do you really squeeze that into language? Or at least um, feel comfortable sharing it with a world that that doesn't welcome that kind of a perspective. Right. Well, you've shared the word, you've shared descriptions of it with me, but your memory of the actual experience goes way beyond those words, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And there was no question in my mind. And we looked at each other and we're saying, are you seeing that too? So we, <laughs> we, we confirmed it with each other. Right. And, and since childhood, I've always had this intuitive sense that pretty much anything is possible. And until anything proves otherwise, I'm not going to buy into limitation beyond, you know, the way I've been so thoroughly conditioned to believe in limitation already, which I've rebelled against to, to the best of my ability my entire life. Well, I, I think we all have rebelled a bit <laughs> to one extent or another. Uh, I can un- well understand that. Um, you know, when it comes to questions of of knowledge and belief and so on. I think even with regard to our own experiences and how we interpret them, I think it's wise to have a very big maybe box. I tell I tell people, when people ask me, well, do you believe this or that or the other thing? I say that for the most part, I put everything in my maybe box. For one thing, because I know that my my human level of understanding can't necessarily comprehend the whole of a situation that I'm presented with. But even in terms of information, people tell me all kinds of things. And my first response is to put it in the maybe box. It's a huge maybe box. I have, a, I have a, on one end of the maybe box, I have a very small yes box with a very high threshold of entry. On the other end of the maybe box, there's a field of manure that stretches over the horizon to Alpha Centauri. You know, humans come up with the most amazingly egocentric, nonsensical, stuff, especially in our, our age of, of intensive communication now. We are bombarded with a variety of, of personal realities that our ancestors could not even imagine in their science fiction. So what should I believe? 
out of all of this. And for me personally, the only thing that I have to believe is whatever relates to an actual decision I have to make in my own life. Everything else can stay in the maybe box. And I think that's a very important tenet of good scientific investigation as well, that we should not be too eager to jump to conclusions, especially conclusions that can be couched only in our, in our Western languages. And I think that willingness to be in the space of I don't know is a very valuable tool for connecting with the greater reality. Because if we want to begin to sense or perceive anything about the greater reality, we have to be we have to be willing to be skeptical in the best sense of our own physical-based perceptions. We have to be able to at least doubt our own assumed knowledge in order to be able to go beyond it. And this is not just an intellectual exercise. This, this has to do with our, our inner orientation to reality. I feel like I'm kind of um, grasping for words here. I hope I'm, I hope I'm getting across what I mean. I think you are. How would you put this, this issue of, you know, what we think we know versus uh, reaching beyond it? Well, I learned early on to, to question anything that I thought I believed that Mm. there's, that we can, we can concoct any kind of evidence and we have that tendency to concoct evidence to bolster anything that we choose to believe in. But Mm -hmm. that's all a game that we play in our heads. And I have learned over and over again, although I still fall into the endless traps of all of this, you know, the pitfalls of believing in anything. So to the best of my ability, I choose not to believe anything unless, as you said, maybe to put it in slightly different words, unless it's directly relevant to my life right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not even in the past or future, but right now. And I think I think there's there's a, a powerful relationship to being present and maintaining an open mind, a truly open mind that isn't swayed one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Unless unless you have a direct experience that you find compelling in an embodied sense. Yes, I I think that's very well put. This reminded me of the experience that I had of being at the the house in Skoll where the Skoll experiment had been conducted and being shown some of the artifacts that had been apported into their room during these sessions. And by apported is meant uh, that those on the other side are able to bring physical objects from distant places in time and space and simply manifest them in the room. In this case, the group worked pretty much in the dark around a central table, kind of like seance fashion. And these objects would simply fall out of thin air. They would fall onto the table. And regardless of their size, they would make the same very loud thud sound, which I found interesting. And probably the most evidential example of this was um, there were two newspapers that just out of thin air fell onto their table. These newspapers were published in 1944 and 1945 during the uh, late war years. And yet these newspapers were pure white. They were pristine as if they had just come off the press. 
One of them was analyzed by the Paper Industry Research Association in England, which analyzed their, their chemistry and found that, in fact, these were newspapers from the early 40s, which had a particular chemical signature that was unique to that era. So their vintage had been very solidly established. So I held one of these papers in my hand, and this was about five years after they had arrived. And I could see that the outer pages had begun to yellow, as newsprint does over time. But the inner pages were still pure white, as if this paper had just come off the press. Now, that for me was an amazing experience. Because here was, you know, the, the, the testimony of the participants, the physical scientific evidence by the Paper Industry Research Association, and the physical evidence that the paper had not yellowed inside. So, you know, this tells us that, you know, our whole conception of space and time is so puny, as it were. I, I think the fact that we're, we're curious about these things, given the, you know, the norms of our civilization, the fact that we're curious at all about these things is remarkable and a really good sign. And I often wonder how, you know, where things are going to be, say, 10 years from now in this area. Are these phenomena going to be more common? Or is their commonality going to be more openly acknowledged? I hope at least the latter. It would be, I think, wonderful if, if people felt comfortable enough to share these things. I'm blown away by your story about your acid trip. And I'm so glad I asked about it. I would never, I would never have heard of any anything of that nature or that caliber otherwise. And I wonder now how many other people's um, psychedelic journeys have been accompanied by this um, very explicit afterlife communication. Well, I've encountered people who have relayed equally confounding and amazing experiences that didn't have any um, psychedelic stimulation to them. And I've had mm. numerous experiences that are quote unquote otherworldly or or very expansive that were not induced by psychedelics or or any other kind of phenomenal, you know, circumstances. So I don't necessarily put much stock in the effect of the psychedelics on it. I think psychedelics have a way of they shut down that filtering part of the brain that shuts out mm -hmm the vast majority of, of our access to reality. And, mm -hmm. and that's, that's something I wanted to, to have you talk about was um, reality is another one of those things that we, we lock into this very, very narrow, I like to use the term kitty litter box. And, right. And to talk about your working definition of reality. Okay, um, that's another bit of language I had some fun with in, in the book. Having first disposed of the notion of objective truth, and I won't say much more about that. that that's, that's, I think, the, the funnest part of my book, and I'll, I hope your listeners pick up the book and enjoy that chapter. Um, but yes, reality, everyone wants, wants you to believe that their reality is the reality, and they'll say, oh, yes, but really to sort of reinforce their point. But when you slog through all this stuff, you find that reality is a really slippery word. And it enables people to pigeonhole things as real or unreal, existent or non-existent. 
And really, all they're doing is projecting their own point of view and doing that. So is it even possible to, to come up with a valuable definition of reality? And so in the book, I propose this, that reality is anything that can give rise to consequences. And I pose that as a working definition, not an absolute definition, but I think it makes sense. Anything that can give rise to consequences. And that means anything physical or emotional or psychic or subtle fits the definition. And it makes it harder for people to sort of impose their beliefs on it. It's almost a way of saying that everything is real. And I think it's fun working with that working definition and testing it. And it it gives gives us a lot of flexibility in our um, perceptions, in our sense of reality, and so on. And I I think it also softens things a bit, because we we don't get to use the word as as leverage on behalf of our own particular point of view. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really the lesson of quantum physics, and what it's and the implications of what it's revealing about the nature of quote, unquote, reality. Yes, I think quantum physics is very important. I think it's still a step removed from where we really want to take this, but it's a perfect, at least intermediate step in our understanding. Right, a bridge. It it is a bridge, and in that it has already pulled the rug out from under Newtonian physics, which is not to say that Newtonian physics doesn't apply in its own realm. I mean, even the most sophisticated um quantum scientist still has to drive to work in a Newtonian universe. So uh, it's a question of each framework in its own place. But to the extent that quantum mechanics or quantum physics um, teaches us that Newtonian or conventional physics is not the whole picture, I think it's really important to see these as relative frameworks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And quantum physics, to me, what it, what it's really offering us is a basis to doubt or question our perception, you know, our limited perception of what we think is, you know, real or reality. Who's we? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I, I couldn't resist. But no, I think the, I, the question needs to be asked. I have no idea whether my next door neighbor's consciousness is already beyond quantum physics. I have yeah. no way of doing that. Yeah, it's true. Right. I could be, I could be the only dolt left in this, you know, <laughs> section of the galaxy that really falls for all this nonsense. Right. Yes. Well, I, yeah, I often wonder that about myself as well. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so getting back to the skull experiment, there's quite a range of the experiments that they were doing and and the evidence that they were producing through this amazing collaboration between the team of mediums on this side and the team of spirits on the other side that were working together. They actually were working together for years. And from what I remember, it took them about a year of actually experimenting together to the point where they could actually establish a workable bridge across which they could communicate. Effectively. Right. They, right. They they had sort of apparently minor phenomena happen during that first year, but at a certain point things really connected, and then the 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 uh, the phenomena really exploded. 
and there there was a, a huge variety of phenomena that occurred. Uh, one of my favorites is their photographic experiments. In the initial one, they were asked to put a conventional 35 millimeter film camera on their table, which they did, loaded with a roll of color film in it. And during their session, the camera apparently levitated, moved around the room, circled around the room. They could hear the shutter clicking repeatedly. And then the camera was deposited back on the table. And uh, they were instructed to have the film developed. And when the film was developed, what they saw on this film were 11 perfectly framed black and white images, which they were told were copies of photos that existed somewhere in the world. And in fact, the, the Skull folks were able to track down a few of them, found them in various archives. But the main thing is this was an, an initial demonstration. And they said that they copied existing photographs because it was easier than creating new images from scratch. Now, the subsequent experiments involved them uh, being asked to put just the roll of film without a camera on their table. The film was guarded by the investigators from the SPR who were observing the experiment, and they ensured that there was no hanky-panky and no substitution of the film and so on. When these films were developed, uh, they displayed a huge variety of content. There were images, signatures of notable people on the other side, um, technical information, diagrams, poetry, puzzles, artwork, um, original artwork, and also duplicates of, of photographs of well-known people on the other side. Uh, it was just an amazing variety. They also were asked uh, at one point to bring in a video camera, a VHS videotape camera, which they set up in a particular way with mirrors where the camera was seeing its own viewfinder, which produced uh, what's called a video feedback loop. And the video feedback loops are interesting because they are indeterminate. They're very flexible and change from moment to moment in a, um, not a kaleidoscopic way, but in a, in a way that is flexible enough that apparently allows for manipulation, easy manipulation by those on the other side. And so in this experimental setup, they produced all kinds of interesting images. Some were abstract and semi-abstract video frames. These are individual video frames that showed up on the tape, plus um, moving images of light effects and so on that are not accountable for by the simple video feedback loop that they had established. They also had a series of animated faces show up. You can see all of these in our film, which is called Skull, the Afterlife Experiment. And you can see that, by the way, just in any browser, go to bit.ly, bit.ly slash Skull Movie, one word, S-C-O-L-E-M-O-V-I-E, bit.ly slash Skull Movie. And you'll see it's an 80-minute feature documentary that goes into many aspects of the Skull Experiment which actually barely scratches the surface of it. I mean, if you want a thorough account of the experiment as a whole, you need to read Robin Foy's book, Witnessing the Impossible, which reproduces his notes from every one of the 500 skull sessions. And that, it's a long read, and it's fascinating. Also, there's a popular book called The Skull Experiment by Grant and Jane Solomon, which is very well written and will give you a, a wonderful overview of the experiment. So those two books and, and our documentary are probably the best information about it.
It's the Magical Mystery Tour here on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. I'm talking with Dan Drayson. He's an award-winning documentary filmmaker, and he's the author of this book that we've been talking about, A New Science of the Afterlife, Time, Space, and the Consciousness Code. listening and have not seen the documentary and who are probably very naturally skeptical about this, um, could you talk about the precautions they took to prevent any hoaxing or interference that could otherwise explain these phenomena? Sure. They conducted the experiment in the cellar of this 17th century farmhouse where they lived in the, in the town of Skoll. It was a very quiet cellar. It was sort of an old, like an old wine cellar, a brick-lined wine cellar, one flight below ground. It had only one entrance, which they kept locked during every session. The participants and any guests were instructed to leave any keys or devices or anything else outside the room. Since most of the sessions were done in pretty much complete darkness, they had to ensure against any kind of manipulation in the dark. And so every movable object in the room had a luminous tab attached to it. Everyone wore luminous wristbands, which were attached with Velcro, so any attempt to remove them would be audible in the quiet cellar. The table itself, the central table around which they worked, was designed to block any surreptitious reaching under the table and so on to manipulate things. For two of the five years, the experiment was monitored by three quite skeptical and well-informed investigators from the British Society for Psychical Research, which is, in fact, quite a skeptical organization. They have very high standards in their investigations. And at no time during this two-year period was any evidence of fraud or manipulation found. The experiment was also witnessed by many guests over the five-year period, including scientists and engineers. Um, A stage magician attended. He could find no apparatus that would have accounted for any of these phenomena. And the, the evidence for the experiment's genuineness was truly overwhelming. The Skoll Report was published by the Society for Psychic, excuse me, SPR, uh, a London-based SPR, as the Skoll Report, which is available on Amazon as a book. And it runs several hundred pages, and it describes the experiment in some detail and offers some possible explanations for how some of these phenomena might have been faked. But these were just guesses, basically. And the bottom line is that none of the investigators or monitors or guests were ever able to find the least evidence of any kind of manipulation. So that's kind of a long answer to your question, but there you have it. Thank you. I'm glad you spelled it out like that. And the videos are very powerful evidence of all of this. And to me, it's irrefutable. And the way I found them was on your website under New Science, which is where um, both the Skoll Experiment and Calling Earth are there to view for free. 
Yes, you can go to dandrasin.com, D-A-N-D-R-A-S-I-N.com. Uh, click on New Science. You'll see the description of my book. And then just scroll all the way down the page, and you'll see the two links to the two films there. You can also click through even below that to a whole other website that's hiding behind that page. It's my New Science website, which used to be separate. I've now consolidated into my one website. But yes, you can access both films there. And I think we probably should mention the other film, which is Calling Earth. And this documents the phenomenon of instrumental transcommunication, which simply means communication from the other side through electronics. This was rumored to have begun back in, in the age of the telegraph, but we don't have any concrete recordings of that, obviously. But starting in the 1950s, when tape recorders first became consumer items, a lot of people started reporting hearing strange voices on, on their recorded tapes, which shouldn't have belonged there, shouldn't have been found there. And at first, these were dismissed as, um, oh, the recorder is probably picking up some radio station nearby. And that did happen. It was, phenomenon was called radio pickup. And if there was a very powerful radio station nearby, the electronics in some of these recorders would pick up fragments of radio programs. And so these were mostly dismissed. In, in the United States, they were mostly dismissed. But in Europe, a number of researchers started taking this phenomenon seriously. One of them, or let's say the first, really the pioneer, was a man named Friedrich Jürgensen. He was a Swedish artist and actor and film producer. And he was out one night with his new tape recorder recording nocturnal bird sounds for a documentary he was producing. And when he played back the tape, between the bird sounds, he heard faint voices discussing nocturnal bird sounds. And this got his attention. And he thought this was mighty peculiar, but he, and he couldn't explain it, of course. I said, well, maybe there was a radio station and <laughs> discussing nocturnal bird sounds. But then shortly thereafter, on one of his tapes, he heard the voice of his mother calling him by his childhood nickname. And this pushed him over the edge. At that point, he decided that whatever this is, this needs to be researched scientifically. So he did a series of experiments in which he rolled the tape and he would ask a question. And he would let the tape roll for a while, then he'd ask another question and so on and so on. And when he played back the tape, he would hear faint voices answering his questions. And so this became a, a kind of a, a lifelong pursuit of his, to work with these voices from the other side and document them. Uh, this is a very real thing that was taking place. He was then visited by a Latvian uh, psychologist and researcher by the name of Konstantin Raudova. Raudova worked with Jurgensen for a while and then went off and did his own experiments. And by the time he passed away in 1974, he had recorded between 60 and 70,000 of these voices. He actually published a phonograph record called Breakthrough, which you'll hear part of in the film, on which he presents a number of his, his electronic contacts with the other side. He then, after he passed, he ended up showing up frequently in the work of other experimenters. Uh, Klaus Schreiber from Aachen, Germany, who worked with uh, some very early consumer-type videotape equipment back in the 70s. And Raudova turned up as an image in, in some of Schreiber's work. He uh, received quite a number of images of some of his own deceased relatives, as well as people uh, who were public figures and so on and so on. Again, you can see this in, in my film. And then after Schreiber passed, he showed up in other experimenters' images and sound recordings. 
one which which went on for some period of time, which you will hear in my film. So the level of evidentiality is is way beyond doubt. And the interesting thing about ITC, or specifically what we call the electronic voice phenomenon, which was how this thing started out, which is purely voices, no images. Um, a lot of people are using this just as a tool to communicate with their deceased relatives. I know several people who are doing this on a regular basis. So, you know, and, and this is inexplicable in terms of our conventional physics. How this happens, we don't know. We don't understand the mechanism, but that doesn't mean that the phenomenon isn't taking place. So again, a calling earth, you can get there through my website, or you can you go directly there with the link, which was um, bit.ly slash call earth, one word, C-A-L-L-E-A-R-T-H, bit.ly slash call earth. And that will take you directly to the film. Well, Dan, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. And the book we've been talking about is A New Science of the Afterlife, Space, Time, and the Consciousness Code. Dan, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been so great to talk with you. Well, likewise, Tony, it's been great to meet you and, and to hear your own stories as well. Um, I've been asked by a number of podcasters to do programs with them. And for me, the one of my favorite aspects of it is dialogue with the interviewer and to understand how, you know, how they got into this in the first place and where they're coming from with it. And I think, you know, our conversation in that regard has been very valuable to me and I really appreciate it. I also grew up, by the way, in New York City <laughs> and uh, had a, a problematic childhood, as it were. And I appreciate our, our personal connection in that way as well. And of course, I've been hearing you as the announcer on New Dimensions for many years. Uh, so yeah. you're, you're sort of like family <laughs> in a way. Thank you. Thank you. So it's been so, so wonderful to talk with you and to hear you in the spotlight, so to speak. Well, yeah, thank you. This is uh, something new for me. I've never, I've never been too fond of stepping out in public, but uh, I, I feel a lot of encouragement and even some pressure to do this. I think this is very important in our time right now, when our world is you know, so full of intractable conditions and situations in so many ways. I think it's important for us to realize that this is not the whole picture. Mm -hmm. This is taking place in a larger context, and that both for the sake of our own sanity and our own functionality, it's important for us to realize that this is not the whole picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. And I'm so grateful for your work. I mean, it was eye-opening for me, even with my exposure. Mm. Well, thank you. Thank you. This, this work has been rewarding to me in many ways, and I'm looking forward to continue. I, my, my spies on the other side have been, <laughs> have been egging me on as well and encouraging me to get out there more. So I'm, I'm doing it bit by bit. Mm. Thanks, Tonio. And thank you so much again. And be well. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Dan Drayson is an award-winning documentary filmmaker photographer, and media producer. Since the early 1990s, he's been actively investigating the field of afterlife communication, and his new book is A New Science of the Afterlife, Space, Time, and the Consciousness Code.
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Thank you.